Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is a, uh, is a film director. His new film is called, it's called uh, Medicine for Melancholy. It's filmed here in San Francisco, and it's just opened at the Embarcadero. To our feature film, will you please welcome Barry Jenkins to West Coast Live. Hey, how do you do? Nice to have you in. Lovely film. I mean, what's it about? It's about a couple that meets and spends a weekend in San Francisco and tries to sort out their personal and politics. Yeah, that's sort of the PG version, yes. Yeah, that's the PG version. <laughs> uh, they, first of all, have to find out their names. Yeah, they, uh, they wake up in bed together, and they don't remember each other's names. Uh, the uh, girl wants nothing to do with the guy. The guy wants everything to do with the girl. So, of course, they spend the next 24 hours uh, sort of wandering around San Francisco, getting to know one another, and, you know, in the course of that, that relationship, getting to know the city of San Francisco. And it's, it's filmed uh, in black and white, uh, but there are uh, bits of color in it, it's, tints. It's not quite black and white, it's close. It's yeah. close, I mean, and so I wanted to ask, uh, do you adjust the chroma or something when you're in the editing room? I mean, how do you, I mean, when you first see the couple come out of doors, they're each wearing what must be bright red shirts, but they're toned way down, so it's this very subtle pink, and it's like the only color in the frame. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, it's a very inexpensive movie. We didn't have very many resources. It's like a five-person crew, two actors, and a very small camera. So we knew we wanted to uh, visually reflect the melancholy and the title, like right away. As soon as the movie comes on, the first image, you get it. There's something different about this portrayal of San Francisco. So we decided to desaturate the image. And as we were going through doing it shot by shot, there were certain moments when the, the actors were just responding to one another and these issues you mentioned of gentrification and housing rights and politics weren't really affecting them. And so in those moments, there's a bit more color. So as they get to know one another, color slowly bleeds into, uh, into the image. And you know, in retrospect, also into the city at the same time. And, and changes throughout the course. So there's a lovely moment when it becomes sort of almost full color. And, yeah, we, but I'll, I won't mention that. But yeah, we refer to it as the Technicolor uh, moment. The Technicolor uh, moment. Yeah. You know, a lot of things uh, with this film happened uh, very spontaneously. That was the first thing we shot in the film, was the Technicolor sequence. Uh, my friend just happened to have a 35 millimeter camera package, and uh, he's like, if you can find a short end of 35 millimeter film, we can go around and shoot this one little sequence. And so uh, we called all over San Francisco, found this one roll of like a 50 daylight Kodak film, and we ran off and just shot that thing like two hours before the sunset. And uh, you're right, it's very different from the rest uh, of the, the footage in the film, and we wanted it to be that way. So yeah, it was a nice little, nice little happy accident. So it's, it's, a, it's a love story, but it also makes a point that 7% of the population of San Francisco is African American, that's being driven out by other kinds of development. And there's a moment at which we just kind of eavesdrop on a on a housing hearing, a, a debate about housing in the city. Yeah, I think uh, the beauty of making uh, a film at this budget level, just my friends and just my own personal dementia, is that I, I realized... Your own personal dementia? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I realized I could do whatever I wanted to do, and there was a point where I wanted the city of San Francisco to speak for itself. So uh, we decided we were going to break the narrative, and uh, we, we found a housing rights organization, and we said, can we have our actors walk by and we'll set a camera in the corner and we'll just record your meeting. And they said yes. And so we did it and we just dropped it right in the film. And uh, it's very jarring and it's meant to be, you know. It's not meant to be this fictionalized portrait of San Francisco in that moment. That part is about the city just speaking for itself. 
I mean, this is a city that's been so documented, so filmed. I mean, people from, you know, Hitchcock to uh, Clint Eastwood. I mean, all you know, and, and it's been written about in many ways. That you you found a way to to see it in a in uh, with a completely different new a new perspective. Um, but you're not originally from here. No, I'm not originally from here. I'm born and raised in Miami, Florida. And uh, everyone who worked on the film went to the undergraduate film school at Florida State University. The cinematographer who was nominated for Best Cinematography alongside uh, Harvey Milk and uh, The Wrestler, you know, making this film on this $5,000 camera, he's competing with these guys who had, I won't even say how many millions of dollars to shoot their films. Uh, it was, you know, it's quite an, quite an achievement. It's funny, you mentioned Hitchcock and Clint Eastwood. I can't remember the last time Hitchcock or Eastwood made a film about San Francisco. So again, the portrayal of the city in movies and in uh, television is like these sort of dated portrayals. And we wanted to do a contemporary version of San Francisco. So now Barry Jenkins made a version in 2008. Yeah. And I feel like that's more representative of the city today than the Hitchcock or the Clint Eastwood films. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're historical documents in a way that yours will be in 50 years. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> So how'd you find your actors? There are two of them. There are two of them. Uh, we tried to cast the movie here in San Francisco using real people, but uh, for a city that's only 7% African-American and then what percentage of that 7% consider themselves performers, we couldn't find people. So we went down to LA and uh, we found uh, Tracy Higgins and uh, Wyatt Sinek, who's now a correspondent on The Daily Show. And uh, he was not a correspondent then, and that's how we got him to be in the film. And uh, actually we found Wyatt uh, through a clip on YouTube. He was on this sitcom called uh, My Black Friend. And it was about this white guy who was upset that he didn't have any black friends. So he invited these black guys to his apartment to compete to be his black friend. <laughs> and uh, and it, was, it, it was really funny. And now uh, Wyatt was on the episode and he didn't even have any dialogue. The camera just tracked across his face uh, at the end of the episode. And uh, four months later, my producer goes, did you watch that clip? I was like, yeah, there was this one guy. And so we sent him a message on MySpace. And like I said, he was not on The Daily Show then. So he came out immediately. And uh, he read the scene a few times, and uh, he was just great. I never thought about casting a comedian in this dramatic role, but there was something about the way he finessed the dialogue and the way he really worked over the actress he was reading with. I was like, this guy's perfect, and we just cast him on the spot. I mean, they both come across as, as totally natural people. They don't come across as acting. It doesn't come across as acting. It's probably because they're not trained. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing about that was uh, we couldn't afford to bring them up for rehearsal. Again, the, the budget of this movie was, I say it was about the cost of a car. If you drove here today, your car costs more than the budget of this film. Um, and so we couldn't afford to bring them up. And so they got here 12 hours before we shot the first shot. But it's a film about two people who don't know each other getting to know one another over the course of a day. So as we shot the film, they became more familiar with one another. And it just worked you know, with the performances. The, uh, the idea of having uh, uh, the, the, the man ride his bicycle, um, and it's a peculiar bicycle, too. Where'd that come from? Well, I live here in San Francisco, and uh, one, of the, one of the main things about making this film was to do a portrayal of African Americans that wasn't stereotypical. I feel like there's nothing wrong with hip-hop or R&B or spoken word or jazz. Those are very authentic portrayals of African American culture, but black people also ride bikes, and they eat salads, you know, and they, <laughs> they go to co-ops, and so I was like, these things are going to be in the film. Uh, so I was riding my bike uh, uh, in the mission one day, and there was this black woman riding, you know, on the opposite bike lane coming towards me. And she looked at me, I looked at her, and she just nodded her head like this. And I was like, oh, that's going to be black people riding bikes in this movie. <laughs> and and, and that, was, that was really like all it took for me to decide we're going to ride bikes, you know? And so they ride bikes in the film. 
he, he rides a bike with a little tiny handlebar. Yeah, he's actually riding the cinematographer's bike. Uh, it's, which, it's a fixed gear bike. It's like the thing you do if you're like an indie hipster sort of person. So we wanted him to be like this indie hipster black guy. And uh, why it's great, he, does, he didn't ride a bike, but we trained him. Sort of, uh, to ride the fixed gear bike. Well, you got him riding in city traffic, which is impressive. Yeah, impressive and scary. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, and they're both, uh, they both have very uh, interesting work. They both have an interesting sort of personal aesthetic uh, in their lives. And they get into kind of a, a tussle, a political debate, too, about what it means to be black. Yeah, uh, again, the movie spun out of my own personal dementia. And I think uh, I was sort of a split between the two worldviews of these two characters. So I thought rather than just deal with it myself, I'll create, I'll dramatize the scenario and I'll give one half to one character and the other half to the other character. And I wanted them to both be valid. I think they both have very valid things they're saying in the film. And I think it's a discussion that we have behind closed doors, but not, uh, not in public. And I think usually when you see a film that tackles issues like this, there's always this debate between art and commerce, you know, or, you know, politics and entertainment. I wanted to make an entertaining film that was artful and commercial and politically engaging. And so uh, that was why, as the movie builds, you know, it, comes, it becomes a bit funner, but also the dialogue becomes a bit more intellectual, almost academic, which makes me cringe. But I think it works because they say it with feeling. Now, and who wrote the dialogue? Uh, I did. Yeah. And it makes you cringe. Uh, well, sometimes because it's so personal, you know. Yeah. Oh, like, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I do a Q and A, and people go, "So, uh, when when the guy said that part, uh, what were you thinking?" I was like, "It wasn't me. It was the character," and they just <laughs> snicker. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reaction of the uh, the actors to the script? Uh, actually, uh, Tracy loved it uh, immediately. I think, as an African American actress, and, and uh, I would say struggling or up and coming now, African American actress, she was relieved to see a role that was about an African-American woman that wasn't, you know, as I've been saying, stereotypical. So I think she really took to it. I think Wyatt was the same way. Wyatt really could identify uh, with the character Micah. I feel like Wyatt and I are kind of the same person. I mean, if you see the film, you see we, we sort of speak in the same cadence in a, in a weird sort of way. So they both were really just relieved and really, uh, really took to it. I think to come up and do the movie without any rehearsal, it really just showed that they bought into the script. Is, did you have any kind of curious permit issues that arose? Not gonna answer that question. <laughs> Was there a favorite place that you liked to, to uh, you shot in the city? Uh, uh, it, it was fun shooting all over the city. There is one sequence in the film that we did get a permit for, where the characters. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh, I've I've been so good at this. How how did I do that? Um, and so the characters walk out of, uh, out of the Museum of the African Diaspora. They walk past MoMA, past the MLK fountain at the Moscone Center, across the footbridge, and they get on the carousel. Uh, we didn't get a permit for that. It was really expensive. It was a tenth of our production budget. And we had to shoot it all in two hours. But uh, it was so fun to do it. Because it was literally just, you know, part of making the film was that I'd been in L.A. for two years working for uh, Harpo Films. You know, I met a lot, of, a lot of very powerful people. But I couldn't get anybody to help me make a film and neither could my friends. So this movie was almost as much as it's about these characters and these issues, it was about us as craft persons exercising our craft and proving that we can make a film. You know, once we figure out our limited resources, we can maximize the potential of those resources. So shooting that sequence in two hours, it really just like, it was the best feeling. When we were done and we knew, okay, we got that. It was awesome. It's like improv theater. You know, you know, I had a friend say, uh, after seeing the film, it felt like you guys were making jazz. You had a structure, you knew the song, 
and you sort of just played, you know, within the structure. And so that's how I like to think about it. But it doesn't have a haphazard feel about it at all. I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, even though you were clearly doing things um, as you could, you know, and, and sometimes ad hoc. What, what is Harpo Films? Uh, Harpo Films is Oprah Winfrey's film company. Yeah, I worked on There I Was Watching God. I was the director's assistant on that movie right out of film school. And then I worked in development at Harpo Films in L.A. It's a good job. I had, a, I had like, a benefits. It's, like, the only time in my life I've been able to afford to go to the dentist. It was amazing. It's like, I can go to the dentist. This is awesome. Uh, but it was two years of uh, working for Ms. Winfrey and not working for myself. So eventually uh, I resigned. I gave my car to charity because I was sick of driving around L.A. I gave my furniture to my friends. I packed a suitcase. And I started taking trains around the country for about eight months. Uh, the first stop was San Francisco. And I met a woman here. So when the trip was done, I moved back here for that woman. Eventually, she broke up with me, and that's why I made medicine for melancholy. There, 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 there's, a, there's a scene where, uh, where, where, where Micah is, I mean, there's, 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 there's a scene where it's evident that he's still dealing with a broken heart, a big broken heart. Yeah, there's actually two of those scenes. I think the, the more subtle one that people don't mention is the two characters finally make their way back to Micah's apartment. And they walk in, and they bring their two bikes in, and there's a third bike, a really nice bike. And uh, the female character goes, oh, whose bike is that? It's cute. He goes, it's my ex's. I took it back. <laughs> and, and people either they laugh or they either go, aww. <laughs> uh, and then there's also the photo of, of his ex uh, on his MySpace page, which really is like the deep, deep wound uh, that you see in the film. So. Uh, when, uh, where else did you go on your train trip? Uh, I actually went from, uh, because I hate flying, and I'd, I'd done, uh, I'd, I just was, did not want to do any of it. So I went from L.A. to San Francisco, San Francisco, Chicago, Chicago, New York, New York, D.C., uh, D.C., Tallahassee, Tallahassee, Miami, Miami, back to D.C., back to Chicago. Then I went to Denver, worked for the Telluride Film Festival, and then took the train back to San Francisco. It was amazing. I met some of the best people. I'm, I have a friend in Nebraska. It's like, I don't know anybody in Nebraska, but you're on a train for like 24 hours. you got to talk to people. It was great. It was exactly what I needed at that point in my life. And how would you spend your time on the train other than talking to people? Would you read? Would you write? Everything, man. I would read. I would write. And I think the beauty of travel is physically passing through the landscape. And I think that's what you don't get when you fly. So it was great to just be passing through Iowa and just to see a sunset. You know, it's like, what am I doing in Iowa? I'm watching the sunset. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no need for me to be in a rush to get away from this. It was great, you know. I needed to slow down at that point in my life, and that was what riding the trains did for me. It's a, um, uh, do you, you don't consider then, I imagine, yourself a typical Hollywood filmmaker. Uh, I don't, but, you know, I've... Uh, a, I worked as a director's assistant on a Hollywood film, and I think the film school that we went to, Florida State, it does sort of train you to be a Hollywood filmmaker. You know, there's a crew, and there's a budget, there's a protocol. And I think having that training really allowed us to make this movie in 15 days with a five-person crew. 15 days, that's all. Yeah. 15 days, yeah, because even if we didn't have those other 100 people working on the set, we knew what they should be doing, and so we could comp compensate for those people not being physically there. So the film, uh, you had your Technicolor moments in the, in the film. Mm -hmm. What was the rest of the film shot on? Uh, the film is shot on the Panasonic HVX. Uh, it's an HD camcorder. Uh, we shot it at 720p on this uh, tapeless P2 card system. And then we had a lens adapter called a Red Rock Micro, and we affixed a set of uh, Nikon still SLR 35mm still lenses on the front. So it's like the marriage of this old technology and these lenses, which we literally found uh, in a pawn shop and uh, this new technology in the HD camcorder. And I think it gives uh, 
It doesn't look like film. It doesn't look like video. It's like it looks like this thing onto itself. And uh, and how'd you edit it? Uh, in Final Cut Pro uh, on, a, on my buddy's laptop, and we did that in about forty days. It was all very very quick and very in house, you know. Well, congratulations. I really enjoyed it a lot. It's called Medicine for Melancholy, and it's now at the Embarcadero Cinema for, uh, for a week or so? For a week, and hopefully it'll be extended. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Well, Barry Jenkins, pleasure to meet you. I look forward to more of your work. Thank you so much. Thanks. Medicine for Melancholy. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.